The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And as always, a very interesting week in technology. Uh, the NASA is making great headway on the Webb Space Telescope. It has now arrived at L2, Lagrange point number two. We're going to tell you all about the progress with Webb today. Uh, we're also going to discuss uh, the birth of weather forecasting. I got interested in that, you know, trying to predict is there going to be snow, no snow. And weather forecasting dates back to the 1800s. I'm going to talk about the guy who actually, actually developed the technology for weather forecasting. And we're also going to review some of the best programming languages uh, to learn if you're just new to IT. And I'll talk about the top few uh, in a recent survey done in 2022. This week, we're going to feature David Lee Chom. He is a, a computer scientist and cryptographer. He's best known as inventor of digital cash, a precursor to Bitcoin. Many call him the grandfather of Bitcoin. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, today's show on Web 3.0 was absolutely excellent. You probably know this, uh, but I just thought you'd like to hear it. I will mention here that there was an article that I saw, and I, and I sent you some of the tweets, and I attached a document uh, that relating to it. The article is titled, a big tech employee took to Twitter to speak on what is currently going on inside big tech. According to the employee, big tech has fully gone insanely, radically left wing. He details a demoralized industry with no more real innovation. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener. Well, Bob, you are right. Big tech has gone left wing. And what is interesting, when, when you listen to what people are saying, because uh, this gets that to what we teach at Stratford. Uh, what we need is for everyone to be more of a critical thinker. What we have are too many people will have an opinion which they uh, which they like to um, you know like to uh, pontificate, if I might use that word. And uh, but they don't listen to the person they're talking with. They they talk at him. And what we have to do is become more of a critical thinker. Now. Being a critical thinker means that it's it's meta-thinking. It's thinking about thinking. You really decide, if you've got an opinion, why do you have that opinion? Was it based on valid data? Is there another viewpoint? And 
and what and 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 try to look at and interpret the data using the viewpoint of another person. So the best way to do that when you are disagree with someone is to try to not argue with them, try to understand why they believe what they believe. Try to look at the problem through their eyes. And if you do that, you might find that that change in perspective could shift your perspective. And if they do the same thing for you, try to look at the problem through your eyes, normally people who do that, uh, have the ability to do that, can, can arrive at some agreement. Now, this is called breadth. So what you're really doing, you're not saying my opinion is right and whatever I believe is truth. You're saying, no, I'm a thinking person. There is this one opinion that could be true, and I'm going to look at it through at another perspective, and I'm going to analyze it to decide what makes sense. This is just one element of critical thinking, uh, breadth, and there are, there are many other elements. But I think even in the tech world, these guys are really smart, but I don't think they're thinking critically. Actually, I don't think I don't think politicians are either, if I might say that. But that was a good observation, Bob, and thanks for the compliment about uh, our Web3 discussion. Uh, we have an email from Alex in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I've been hearing about the impact of 5G cellular phones on aircraft safety. Some carriers have canceled flight because of 5G deployment by AT&T and Verizon. What are the facts? Will this really affect flight safety? Alex in Baltimore. Well, Alex, the launch of the new 5G cell phone service in the U.S. has sparked a fight between the telecom companies and the aviation industry. Now, the airlines are claiming that this cellular signal will interfere with aircraft technologies and could cause catastrophic disruptions. Now, here's the issue. 5G uses the C bands of frequencies. This is 3.7 gigahertz to 4.2 gigahertz. Now, that is that band of frequencies in the C band, they also call them the mid frequencies, that's also close to frequency bands used by the airlines. Now, the, the reason that cellular companies like these particular bands, this is what gives them the speed. They've got a lot of bandwidth there, and the high speed of 5G is coming from the mid-band. So the, the telcos really do want to use it. And, uh, and they um, actually paid the FCC $81 billion for the right to those bands at an auction. Now... Because of this dispute, uh, Verizon and AT&T limit 5G service around some airports. See, the, what the airlines are saying is, look, even the band is close to our bands, and sometimes there's leakage. Like if you've ever like tuned uh, an AM radio, you know, you can get off the center frequency and still get some of the uh, frequency from the radio station because of leakage. So if the transmitters aren't tuned properly, you, you could get leakage. And what the airlines are saying, look, th th this could this could uh, this could actually damage um, our uh, ability to for our electronics and make make landing uh, difficult. Now, and so they're primarily concerned about cell towers near the uh, near the airport. Now, here's the ridiculous thing: the FCC and the FAA have been screaming at each other. But they haven't done any testing. Now, uh, when the FCC put these bands up for sale, the uh, the FAA was saying, "Don't sell them! Don't sell them!" They they went on. They 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 went before Congress. 
They went on. They went on the air. They started talking about it. They didn't want the FCC to sell the bands. The FCC sold them. Now, what should have happened? There should have been testing. They should have tested the actual equipment was being de deployed to see whether there was leakage and whether there was interference. Now, it turns out that in Europe and other countries in the world, they they did test it. I mean, 5G's been deployed in 40 countries. Now. I do kind of agree with the airlines that you don't want to test something with 500 passengers on board. You'd probably like to test it before you are actually having live flights. Now, now the compromise that they reached in Europe was that around the airports, they would limit transmitter power for the 5G signal. And they would also use directional antennas so that they would not be pointing the signal at the flight paths around the airport. And they tested that, and there was no interference, and so they, they launched. So I suspect we'll have something like that. There will probably be the same limitation of power around the airports, probably directed away from the flight paths. But the electronics is pretty good. I don't think we're going to see a lot of inter interference. And so I think this will be safely done. I think this is more of bureaucratic incompetence for not doing it and not rolling it out correctly. You know, it's funny. We always talk about the federal government as if, if it were one large entity and it had one purpose, you know, like it, often nefarious from the point of view of people who want, you know, uh, cyber freedom. But but here two agencies are actually fighting each other and not communicating very well about it either. No, they're, they're not. And and the FCC definitely want to sell this mid-free. They made $81 billion out of the deal. Yeah, well, that $81 billion came out of your pocket and mine for our uh, monthly uh, wireless account and our yeah, cable you're, TV you're exactly account. Right. You're, <laughs> you're, we you're, paid you're, for that, Doc. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. So now, now what they'll, they're, so uh, these, these big, the, they're going to, I think they're going to get this thing worked out. I mean, for years, they said you couldn't have your cell phone on board the, oh, the airline. Oh, I know. And people ignore that, by the way. Well, it people out that was all bunk. Absolutely. It didn't, it didn't interfere with at all. And they still, But they still have those rules. They still tell you, oh, now you may turn on your cell phone. It's like, yeah, actually, it was not. When you look around the cabin, everybody's using it anyway. <laughs> everybody's using it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got friends that are 747 pilots. They say the thing is just complete garbage. Absolutely. They, 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 they leave theirs on, and they're up in the cockpit. Yes. And they said there, there's, there's no... There's no interference. No, so, there is so they're, not. So they, they, they. Uh, I, I do agree. There should be. It should be tested. I, I kind of a, do agree with that. But uh, although testing, I mean, sure, fine. But you know, they could also just look. They could study what's been done in Europe and what's working just fine. So you wouldn't have to test like from ground zero either. You could test premises that have been proven elsewhere and just make sure that they can be adapted to um, U.S. conditions. They could do. They they could actually accept the tests in Europe if if if. But, you know, RFA is their, their own man, uh, so uh, their own agency. Yeah, if they would accept the testing that's been done in Europe and other countries, then they would be good to go. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's very political, and uh, I, I just think the uh, FAA is not happy because the FCC didn't kowtow to them properly. I, 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 I think this is just a, re 
a tempest in a teapot that's going to go away soon. And just yesterday, in fact, uh, uh, there was a story out about the airline CEOs. So all the major airlines said, you know, actually, we don't think this is going to be a problem either. What they've tested so far, almost 80% of the planes that they tested were just fine. And they thought that there were some small adjustments that could be made, probably along the lines of what you were just saying about, you know, directional antennas and things like that. And they just say, you know, this is not going to be a problem. Uh, or as they like to say it in their, you know, very simple language, no material disruption going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's the I think they're, they're getting they're getting the right message here. But I, the thing is, I do agree with them that. Launching the services without without any testing was irresponsible. Absolutely, just in principle, it's irresponsible. Just in principle, it was irresponsible. Yeah. So uh, I I I just agree with him on that, and I think that's a failure of the FAA and the FCC working together. I, and the airlines were just caught in the middle of it, and, the, and so were the so were the cellular companies. Here's the irony: the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission, but they're not that good at communicating. Yeah, that's right. That is their problem. <laughs> okay, we got an email from Karen in Virginia Beach. Dear a Tech Talk, what are your thoughts about building, having someone build a custom custom computer for me rather than buying a brand name in the store? My cousin Eric's computer geek, he says he can build a PC for me better than the one I buy in a computer store for the same amount of money. Do you think I should let him, Karen in Virginia Beach? Well, Karen, my, my son built uh, several computers and thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I liked him to build his own computers because he learned about the components and, and, and the thought process, you want to buy components whose specifications are matched, you put it together. And, and he had fun building a gaming computer, you know, overclocking it, it was really good. Now, he, had, he bought a lot of different pieces. Now, if Eric builds a computer for you, I think he'll, he'll definitely have fun, but he's gonna be purchasing individual parts. You know, you'll get the motherboard, you get the hard drive, you have the power supply, you'll have your RAM, have your CPU, and he'll he'll have multiple parts from uh, a lot of different vendors. Now, the problem is that once he delivers the uh, computer to you, uh, suppose the hard drive fails, you can't go back to the computer manufacturer and get the hard drive replaced. You have to go back to the hard drive manufacturer where who where you, you bought the hard drive, you know, individually, and so uh, that means that Kevin is gonna to have to keep all the receipts and all the warranty information for the various parts in case something fails. Now, hopefully, Kevin is gonna be able to do that for you, and, uh, and, and if anything fails, he'll be able to replace it. Uh, now, if you have a brand name, uh, you will, uh, you know, and a component breaks, you just go back to the, to the just go directly back to the, um, to the company and they'll, and they'll fix whatever it is. Now there is one advantage if you if you get a, a custom built machine you can you can tailor it make to you can tailor make it to your needs like if you you know if you want to have like a like a high speed gaming computer with all sorts of lights in the case you can you can you can get a customized uh, uh, computer that that you can't get any other way uh, and in that case if you're going to get some high performance computer that has all sorts of modifications to it. I think building it certainly makes sense. That's what my son did. He, he modified his, he overclocked it. He was always tweaking with it. And that's, that's what he enjoyed. On the other hand, if you're just getting a computer to run Microsoft Word or, or Office 365, and it's just a run of the mill generic computer, 
I don't think there's any advantage to having it custom built. Well, um, and, there, and there's some all. risk because, you know, not everyone has a genius kid to, uh, you know, to do this for them. Right. So you, this could go really, really wrong, too. And then you have like a friend that you're angry with <laughs> because yeah. they didn't do it right. But, you know, maybe you shouldn't have asked them to do something they couldn't quite handle. So you really have to know who you're dealing with, that that person is really going to be able to do this right. Yeah, and and it, I mean, it used to be in the day that, that that PCs were really expensive, and you could save money by building your own. That's not true anymore. Yeah, so that has changed for sure. That has changed. You 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 probably are not going to save any money because the individual parts may actually cost more than the computer that you could buy already assembled. Because these manufacturers they 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 buy their components in huge quantities, and so they get really a good deal on them. And so, I. I would probably not recommend it if if you just have a run of the mill application. Uh, if you are okay, if if you decided you wanted to build a high speed computer like for mining Bitcoin, or mining oh, wow. uh, or mining Ethereum Ether, and you wanted to get a bunch of graphic processors assembled, and you want to get some special cooling, okay. Oh, yeah. Then I think it might make sense to have him build that for you. Yes, custom, but he should get made, he should get a cut of the uh, of your profits too. By the way, that's right. You <laughs> he know, should get a cut of that Bitcoin. Machine might might make <laughs> might make sense. You know. Yeah. But but just for a run of the mill office machine, I'd tell you, I just go and get uh, you just go get a good brand that's got that's got good reviews and get the best price you can get. The other thing when you're buying computers, you don't have to get the latest model. <clears throat> I've always found if you get last year's model, it, you, it's, you know, you, you get about, you know, 60, you get about 40% off. And, um, and, and when you're older, it's not really that bad. So. Re related question, Doc. How do you feel about, like, say, iPhones? They keep coming out like every year. There's a new one now. I mean, is that same principle apply? You can save some money if you're willing to go one or two iPhones back from the yeah, current? Yeah, you, de you definitely can yeah. save money if, if you just... And you have to look at what features you want. Uh, yeah, like if the camera I mean, thing is very important to you, like the, the latest ones have the zoom, you know, like um, long-distance zoom stuff that the previous cameras didn't have, then yeah, you want the latest. Yeah, you, you want the latest. But I mean, but the, the most of the stuff in the uh, in the cameras is, I mean, they, they, they get they get faster processing chip each year. Apple comes out with 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 a with a better CPU and a better camera. But but the core operating system is basically the same. So the only reason I upgrade is when I um, is is when I want to, you know, upgrade to the new camera. Like I had a 6S. And I didn't get uh, a new phone until uh, iPhone 11. Yeah. And um, and so you know I waited a good long while, and and I basically wanted to get um, the and I got the 11 Pro because I wanted the three lenses so I could do um, I could have three fields of view, and it was an optical zoom, not a digital zoom. So I basically uh, wanted to get that camera, and uh, and so I I, I basically. My cell phone has become my camera. <laughs> Everybody's has, hasn't it? I mean, for the most part, yeah. And, and I do more text messaging. And, and but I that surf, optical surf zoom is a huge uh, improvement because digital uh, zooming really involves just greater pixelation. Yeah, it does. It's uh, so I really do do like that that optical zoom. So so I'm I I always uh, lag on getting a new a new phone and uh, uh, usually. I'll get the new phone when the battery life 
is because over time the battery begins to fail. So I had the success. I replaced the battery one time, and it reached a point where I I, I couldn't go three hours without recharging the battery. Well, the other thing is with every I've, I have an iPhone seven. Okay, so I'm that person mm-hmm. right now. And with every up, but I'm up to fifteen point two. You know, so I'm keeping the updates. But with every update. There, there's so much more battery power that gets used routinely now with the new features that every update brings mm-hmm. that at some point you just need to upgrade your phone because of the battery capacity. That's right. The operating system is is more intensive. And now you see, and now what the what what Apple did, they came out with with a new chip because Apple makes their own silicon now, and the the new chip is extremely uh, 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 power efficient. So with the new chip. The and uh, and with the improved battery, the battery life on the new phones is really good, and so there. So I think there is an advantage in upgrading if you get the 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 new high efficiency chip built that's built into the unit. Then you get a good battery life. So the battery life is really good. I'm ha- I'm happy with my iPhone 11. I just I can go all day now without having to worry about charging. And it's it's like night and day. So I basically got it for, for battery life and for camera. So you do not want it to have Intel inside. What, what is the name? Is there a proprietary name for the new battery, uh, the chip rather, from uh, Apple? Uh, they call it their M1 chip. It's, okay. So that's kind of uh, that's another consideration then when you're thinking about which phone to get. Uh, see, you, you know, you know what happened. Intel used to make all of the the chips for uh, for Apple. And uh, and then Intel got into this deal where they wanted to do high volume, high production, moderate performance chips. And they, they weren't making the the sort of the high end chip because they didn't feel like there was a big enough market. And so Apple started making their own silicon chips. They, they started designing their own chips, sending them over, getting them, getting them produced in a foundry. And they actually had better chips that, than Intel could produce. And so Intel lost Apple's business, actually. Um, so Apple makes their own chips. Now that Intel got a new CEO, and he says, look, it's ridiculous. He, when, a, when a lifestyle company can make a better chip than we can, we're a chip company. <laughs> he calls Apple a lifestyle company. <laughs> I did not, that's, that's kind of a diss in a weird way, but it's also accurate, right? Yeah, and so what yeah. he did, so they brought back, the new CEO is actually a tech guy, an engineer. Uh-huh. They're now building a huge plant in, in the U.S. with the latest high-resolution technology. And uh, he said, look, we are going to be the best chip manufacturer in the world again. So I mean, you, they're they're trying to reclaim their uh, their their birth there. They 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 basically lost the whole chip market for the mobile phone area. They just lost it. They were they were so focused on making chips for for desktops and servers that they they never really penetrated that market. This is the these are all the risk chips, the reduced reduced instruction set computers. Um, and they, that are ARM. They call them ARM chips. They they lost that whole battle, and I think they're going to try to get back into it. Listen, we love your emails. Yes, we do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And if you stick around, we're going to talk. We're going to meet the uh, grandfather of Bitcoin or, you know, the father of digital money next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to talk about David Lee Chom. He's an American computer scientist and cryptographer, best known as the inventor of digital cash, which was a precursor to Bitcoin, and he's also called the grandfather of cryptocurrency. Now, Chom was born January 1st, 1955 in Los Angeles. He, um, he received a doctorate in computer science from the University of California in Berkeley, now, he was um, in graduate school uh, working on his dissertation there in 1982, and, uh, and the NSA came out. Remember back when they did not want us to have any, any encryption that sent to any countries overseas? The uh, NSA said that all encryption software is a national asset. It should be under their control. They basically uh, sent letters to all of the um, research universities that were engaged in encryption research, and they said, do not do any encryption research unless it's authorized by us. Do not work with anybody in other countries. It, you might be arrested. They started threatening the faculty there. Well, David Chom did not take well to this dictum from the NSA, so he secretly set up the National Association of Cryptologic Research. He, he basically set it up. He, he, all of his friends around the world, he contacted them. They set up the organization. They set up a board of trustees. They did this all secretly. And then, uh, un, uh, you know, unappreciated by the NSA, uh, he then organized a national cryptographic research conference. So the funny thing is, so cryptographers, right? So they actually huh? did this for, for several months. He was contacting people, and uh, they did everything in secret. And then yes. all of a sudden, there's a, a conference in real life with real people in one place saying, oh, guess what? We just did. That's right. And so then what he did, he he had the conference, and he was up there. He said he was talking to this conference, and he, was, uh, and he said down in the front row, there was this line of about 10 guys all had on suits, and they 
were not from any company. They were uh, they were from um, uh, they were private citizens that just wanted to come to this cryptographic research conference. They were all dressed, there, and they all were from Laurel, Maryland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and and they they were all from Laurel, Maryland, and just you know working for themselves. So, and they looked like government agents. He looked at them, and so then he said, he said, and they were just they were trying to stop this whole thing. And he says, well, uh, at this conference, he announced. He says, well, all of you paid a hundred dollars to attend this conference. I want you to know that by attending this conference, you are automatically me members of the. Um, International Association of Cryptologic Research. You're all members of it now. And our next conference is going to be held next April in Italy. And there was nothing that the NSA or CIA could do to stop it. So he was highly motivated to work against, as he would call it, the man, and tried to ensure, uh, you know, digital privacy. That was the first eureka moment for him when he got into this privacy track. When the NSA tried to tried to control um, tried to control the cryptographic research. Now his 1982 dissertation included every element of blockchain that was found in Bitcoin except proof of work. Now uh, proof of work is you got to do this complicated calculation in order to be in order to earn the right to validate the block. And, and that's how they felt that blockchains, that cryptocurrency could get value because you had to work to get it. And they said, you know, how can, so it was when Satoshi Nakamoto came up with Bitcoin, he says, well, there has to be a value to Bitcoin. You got to work to get the Bitcoin. And computers don't do anything except calculate stuff. So let's just make a really complicated calculation. And if when then when they get, when they complete the calculation, they earn the right to validate the, the, the next block. And then we reward them for that validation. Do you so think that, that Chom, uh, at that point, because this was all theoretical, did he sort of overlook um, the possible, you know, the fact that this would take, you know, the reason there's proof of work and you have people doing this stuff is because it takes a lot of power and it takes a lot of co co computation to do it. And did he, no, under he, did, he, did he, he underestimate that part of it? No. Well, the reason that's that they they put that into Bitcoin, they wanted Bitcoin to have value. I mean, Bitcoin was the application for that blockchain was cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. So they wanted to have value. And they said, how how can a digital currency have value if you don't do some work? Whereas, I mean, that, that's how they kind of got to it. Well, that's true, because his digital cash thing, it was actually based on fiat currencies. He wasn't thinking about value. He was just thinking of a mechanism to move uh, existing currencies around. Right. Yeah. So he was he was basically, uh, you know, he worked with banks. They used blockchain to validate the transactions. But the transactions... At the end of the day, the bank would look at the blockchain and validate the, 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 the transaction, update the block, and they would make certain that there was no double spend. So uh, even though it, it could be a distributed system with distributed validators, it was centralized with banks. But he was not focused on the money or on the distributed network. He was focused on the privacy because he wanted people to be able to spend money uh, in a way, and then the and then the man can't tell where they spent it. He wanted absolute privacy with his digital cash. That's what he was focused on. So he proposed a vault system, and you would achieve consensus between the different nodes, just like in the current blockchain. 
and you would have time stamping. So once you add a block, it's time stamped, and you know what's going to happen. So you had all the elements that, that were in Bitcoin, and, and then he actually laid out the code to implement the protocol. Now his vaults, as he called them, were encrypted servers. These were nodes on the internet. They participated in constant exchanges, always updating the blockchain in a distributed way. Each of these vaults would sign, record, and broadcast every transition on the network. And various roles would be assigned to participants at each of these nodes. There might be somebody who who would just watch the transaction. There would be somebody who would validate transactions, somebody who was the czar who would actually come up with rules for validation. They'd be like the developers. And they were all publicly authorized. But there was too much centralization with this. It wasn't fully distributed. But he had all the elements that were there in Bitcoin. Now, the consensus algorithm would involve a majority vote of nodes based on the signs, messages, just, just like it is in Bitcoin. So there would be, you know, you'd, you'd have to have like 10 watchers or validators would have to validate a particular block in order for it to, uh, to um, you know, to be, to be a valid transaction. Now, he's credited with the invention of secure digital cash in 1983. Now, this was also when he introduced the cryptographic primitive of a blind signature. Now, a blind signature is you you sign a message without knowing what's in the message. Uh, uh, this blind signature is 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 important. Like if you want to have a say a bank approve a, a transfer for, or approve something that you're a valid person, but you don't want to know what you're transferring, you might have them sign off on it, but they can't see what's in it. Or another example that you may want to have for a blind signature would be at a voting booth where you take your vote in, they validate you are who you are, they validate your your ballot, but they can't see your ballot. So maybe you fold your ballot and then the uh, and then the, um, the the poll official signs your ballot without looking at it. That would be a blind signature implemented on paper. And so he he came up with the protocol for a digital blind signature. Now, his proposal allowed users to obtain digital currency from a bank and spend it in a way which was untraceable by the bank or any other party. That was his goal. So you go to the bank, you get your digital currency, DigiCash, and then you go out and you spend it. And the bank doesn't know what you spent it on. They can't trace it. The government doesn't know. You had absolute privacy in how you spent your money. See, he was focused on privacy. He wasn't focused on making cryptocurrency. Now, in 1988, he extended his idea to allow for offline transactions to, ena- to uh, enable the detection of double spending. So you, you see, the problem was if you didn't have real-time validations looking back over the whole chain, maybe somebody spent the digital currency twice. So there would be a centralized offline calculation every night where they would audit the blockchain and make certain there were not there was not any double spending. And if there would be a double spending, it would simply re- reverse that transaction. In 1990, he founded DigiCash, an electronic cash company in Amsterdam, to commercialize the ideas of his research. Now, the first electronic payment was sent in 1994. Now, Chom left the company in 1999, five years later. Now, if you think about it, he was just a little bit ahead of his time. The, remember the browser. Tim Berners-Lee developed the browser in 1994. 
So nobody was really using the internet that much. I mean, the, the web was just sort of a vision back in 1994 and just the big techies were using the internet. I mean, I was on the internet, but just the, yeah, the, just the everyday guy would not be on the internet. And um, um, so the idea of having a digital cash just, I mean, it didn't really, it, it wasn't really that popular because there, there wasn't really a need for it yet. I'd say he was 10 years ahead of his time. And, and ultimately, um, ultimately it, you know, the company failed. I mean, it was there for five years that there wasn't enough demand for the digital cash. And so it, it, it left. Now, the, uh, the, the side signature, he, he actually, uh, w w was very important to him because he was always focused on privacy. Also, he, he thought we should have anonymous communication. So he wrote a paper on anonymous communication in 1981. Now, the, 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 you know, he, he didn't like the, the way the Internet was set up because everything was traceable with IP addresses. You can see email going through the system. He, uh, the, the Internet protocol is not secure. The metadata on the packet is not encrypted. Uh, people can see exactly where the message came from. So it's very hard to be anonymous on the Internet. So he wanted to find a way to uh, anonymously surf the web, surf the net, despite the fact that the protocol of TCP IP really didn't allow it. And so he came up with what he called a mixed network, where you would have an encrypted signal that would go from you to node one, and then node one would randomly send you to another node. You wouldn't know which other node it would be. It would encrypt it again, send it to another node, and then that node would randomly send it to another node, and it might go to five or six nodes, and there are maybe 10 nodes, and they were randomly selected by each node who would get it next. And then finally, after maybe it had been mixed up in the network and gone through 10 nodes, uh, it would be delivered to the final address. And then the idea was it would be very hard to trace where it actually came from. Now, if you were listening to how that worked, you, you remember there was a the Tor router which was for anonymous browsing that uh, that uh, naval some researchers at Naval Research Lab developed. Is and they it, were isn't that what's used on the dark web? Yes, Tor routing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So he came up with the the core protocol that was built into the Tor browser, and he did that in 1981. He called he called it a mixed network. Yeah. And uh, and the, and and basically the Tor browser was developed by the government to help dissidents in other countries uh, communicate <clears throat> without being without their location being detected by the government. So they were trying to help dissidents in other countries. But now the Tor browsers used used for the dark web, used by criminals, because it turns out uh, that it's uh, it's it, it's not traceable. Although although the NSA, I believe, has some back doors in the Tor browser and it's not totally untraceable when they want to, when they want to get at it. Um, he was also interested in secure voting. Uh, he, he felt that, that blockchains and, uh, and, and cryptography should be central to voting systems. Now, and he wants in, in his voting system, he wants it end to end verifiable. So you can verify that your vote was counted. Uh, people can verify that you were authorized to vote. It's verifiable end to end. Uh, and in his system, individual ballots of voters are kept private, but but anybody could verify that the tally was 
was, you know, added up correctly. They could look at the number of votes that came in and see that the tally is equal, the total tally is equal to the number of votes that came in. Uh, so he developed, uh, you know, one of the first cryptographic voting system. And, uh, and, uh, and he assumed that, that voters could have uh, computers in their home that could do all the calculations and they could submit their vote from home. Now, in 1991, he introduced SureVote, which allowed voters to cast a ballot from an untrustworthy voting system. Uh, it's a process now called vote coding. It can be used in remote systems. So he, you know, he, he basically wanted to develop a system that had sufficient cryptographic signatures that it would work even in an unreliable environment. Now, 1994, he introduced the first in-person voting system where voters cast their ballots electronically at the polling station and cryptographically verified it with a direct recording electronic voting machine. Uh, that 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 DRE they called the DRE direct recording electronic but did not modify their vote or learn what it was. Uh, in the following years, he proposed a series of cryptographical verifiable using systems uh, voting systems. The city of Tacoma Park, Maryland, used his system for the November 2009 election. This was the first time public sector election was run using any cryptographically verifiable voting system. He, uh, he was particularly proud of this because any voter could log back on, look at the blockchain, and see that their vote had been counted. And, they, and, they would, and so uh, I, I'm really kind of disappointed this wasn't used further because I think this kind of system could be, could be used uh, in, uh, across the board. So I've, I've, I've looked at David Chum. He's, he's spoken at many, many conferences. He's still working on the, the whole role of cryptography. People keep asking him, is he Satoshi Nakamoto? And he's very coy about it, but I don't think he is. But if you look at Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, uh, about two-thirds of the paper is drawn almost directly from, from Chum's 1982 dissertation. Really? Yeah. There's, mm, there's, so there's a bit of a footprint there. There is. There's definitely a footprint. Mm. Now, uh, there's definitely a footprint on that. And uh, but he, he just didn't have the uh, the uh, the the cryptocurrency and the distributed network of validators that that was central to to Bitcoin. But if he were the Bitcoin person, I mean, first of all, I think he would take credit for it because he he's never shy about, you know, when he's speaking at conferences saying, well, I thought of this first and I did this and that. So I don't think why would he hold back on Bitcoin? And I've even seen him uh, criticize Bitcoin a little because he said that, you know, people don't realize that it's not completely anonymous in the sense that the um, it's still traceable to your IP address or your device, you know, ID. Uh, so that, that, that people don't realize that. Well, it's traceable to your wallet. It's tra uh huh. See, the wallets are public. So, yeah. So if so, for instance, if you if uh, somebody pays you money, when they transfer the money to you, you know, you know their wallet ID. Mm -hmm. You can go. You can look at that wallet and look at every single transaction that that wallet has ever executed. Mm hmm. So um, in that sense, all transactions are public. So they call it pseudo-anonymous. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really know. I mean, instead of having your name there, you've got this wallet number. 
But as soon as you do anything with the wallet, the person you do it with is, is going to know that's your wallet. <laughs> right. So it's pseudo-anonymous. And he, he did not like that no. element of Bitcoin. No. So I'm feeling like if he were in charge of Bitcoin or if he had started Bitcoin, it would be a different uh, thing than it is right now. So now what he's yeah. working on, and he's and he's not, and he hasn't revealed any uh, any of the thing. He's working on a uh, a a a blockchain, which it, which which had he has 350 validators that are already set up to do it, and he said this blockchain will have cryptocurrency, but it's going to be fully anonymous. He's also developed a completely anonymous messaging system, so he's about ready to launch that, and he believes that this will ultimately be better than anything we've seen, but he's very coy about it. And he says he's, uh, he's not going to launch it. He also said you, uh, you, um, you, whenever you look at what anybody launches something, he says, look for proof of profit, <laughs> you know, proof of profit. He, he thinks the cryptocurrency crew has been co-opted by the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's he doesn't care for that. He's, he's been he, adamant too that messaging and uh, payments are really kind of two sides of the same coin. They're basically the same function, and they need the same kind of privacy um, guarantees. And yes. and often they're intertwined. After all, I'm paying you. What am I paying you for? So it'd be nice, you know, to let you. So they're really interrelated. He said one cannot exist without the other in the the, the, the sort of ecosystem that he envisions. They, they, they kind of go together. Somebody yeah. asked him, you know, about Bitcoin and blockchain. He says, well, Bitcoin is to blockchain what email is to the Internet. Mm-hmm. So without the Internet, you can't have email. So Bitcoin is just an application that sits on top of the blockchain. Yeah, uh, that's that's basically what he's uh, what he's saying. So I think this he's an interesting guy and uh He's very, uh, very circumspect about his next development. I was trying to get more information on it, but I don't. Well, he's don't a cryptographer, Doc, so he's going to be cryptic. You know that. <laughs> and I can tell you, I can't get any information. I, I don't know the name of his parents. I mean, oh, I'm telling you, this guy is like super into privacy. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know the name of his parents. I don't. I don't know what elementary school he went to. He's like. He, there's a total void of background information on him on the web, and I think that's very intentional. <laughs> yes, and we've seen this pattern over the last few profiles that we've been doing for precisely the same reasons, because yeah. this is what they believe in. If privacy is their thing, they're not going to give a whole lot of information out. Yeah, but uh, but at least I think we have his real name. Yeah. I'm Unlike s- Marlon Marlon Spike, who just made <laughs> yes. up a name. <laughs> Listen, we uh, we we love uh, all of our emails and everything, and I think we're ready to rock and roll here. Everything you'd ever want to know about David Chom, the grandfather of Bitcoin. Okay, but as usual, we've got a little more to say about him when we return with observations from the faculty lounge on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Cypherpunks and the drive for privacy. As I said earlier, two events motivated David Chom. The first was when NSA attempted to take over encryption in 1982. And the second one was when Edward Snowden revealed the state of data collection by the state in 2013. This was when David Chom realized that big tech was complicit and cannot be trusted. Now, there's one event that motivated Satoshi Nakamoto when he created Bitcoin. That was the banking crisis of 2008. Uh, if you remember, they were just printing money like it was going out of style. Uh, deficit spending. There was, there was a big melt, especially in Britain. There was just a, a collapse. And he said, we cannot trust governments to run the currency, the sovereign currency. And Satoshi Nakamoto, or the team of people who use that as a pseudonym, uh, wanted to um, come up with something that was more sustainable. Now, these two events uh, can be viewed as the inspiration behind the cypherpunk generation. I call them digital hippies. These are guys that were trying to protest against the power of the state. Now, they wanted to take back power through digital sovereignty, privacy insured through encryption. As far as they're concerned, the game is on. Now, blockchain is ground central for this battle and uh, for privacy, but the new battlegrounds are Web3. And I saw David Chom talk about Web3, and he said this Web3 will eventually take off because it's important. But he said it's going to have to be made easy, easy so that people can just get another browser, get an extension, so they don't have to know what's going on in the background. And he said we're going to have to get the, uh, get the money right, figure out how we can motivate people to maintain nodes on Web3. Now, we, we know that this was done properly for Bitcoin, because there are nodes that are self-sustainable. Bitcoin has a life of its own. There's no central authority. Nobody can kill Bitcoin. It's a distributed blockchain. There are miners that are, that are mining it, and, and they're motivated to mine it because they can earn Bitcoin. So Bitcoin got the, the economics right. So if we can get the economics right behind Web3, we will have a cadre of Web3 miners that are, that are going to operate it. 
Now, um, David Chum is already, you know, he's got his next blockchain about ready to be released. He said he's got 350 miners ready to go, but he is all in for this Web3. So these cryptographers are in a heated battle with the government and with big tech to take back control of our data and to achieve digital sovereignty. Now let's talk about the James Webb Telescope. Which we started to talk about last week, but we've got to finish the story today. We've got to finish it. Yeah, now the James, that NASA is one step closer to putting the James Webb Telescope into service. Now they su successfully employed the gold-plated primary mirror, which basically the parabolic mirror is so big that it wouldn't fit into the uh, rocket unless you folded it up into multiple pieces. And these pieces were then unfurled and locked into place. Now we should make clear that the telescopes are already up in space and all this deploying happens remotely. So the, the telescope has to be able to do this really complicated thing of deploying uh, its parabolic um uh, what did you call it? Um, mirror. The mirror and also mirror, yeah. a sun shield, too, because it's out in space. So They had to have a, a huge sun shield. Yeah, they had to deploy this huge huge sun shield to protect the mirror from the sun. So they, um, you know, they, they, they don't mean, because this is a very sensitive uh, telescope. And they also had to deploy the, uh, the solar cells. So you had to do the solar cell deployment, the uh, sunscreen uh, deployment, and the main mirror deployment, and all that was done. So now, unlike the uh, telescopes of old, you send it up in space, and there it is. And we send it up into space, and now we have to put it together in space without anybody actually being there. With, yeah, and there's nobody, and we're not going to get, we're not going to be able to send a... Uh, no do-over. <laughs> there, there's no do-over, and <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not going to be able to send a space shuttle there to get it. Because That's right. Because this particular... Um, um, satellite is go is going to the Lagrange two point, Lagrange two point. Uh, there, this is a, a gravitational calculation done by Lagrange. You've got three bodies that are involved. You've got the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, and there are five points where the gravitational forces from the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun actually balance out, and you can just sit there in a stable way. There are five Lagrange points, and they're going to the second Lagrange point which is actually out way beyond the moon. It's about 930,000 uh, miles away, almost a million miles away. It's far, it's quite a bit further than the moon. And they're just going to go out to the Grange 2 point, and they're just going to settle there and just sort of gradually rot mute, uh, rotate uh, around the L2. And they are, uh, this week, they arrived at L2. Wow. So okay. they've arrived at L2. Now they're, 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 they're stabilized in the orbit at L2. Now they're going to go through six months of calibration of the mirror, of the sensors. And so now everything has been successfully done. Uh, and now they just have to do the calibration. I mean, this was a gamble. They've never assembled a telescope in space. And um, this was a $10 billion event. It's been delayed, delayed, delayed. This this thing has had several delays because they wanted to test it and retest it and retest it because they, they didn't have a do-over. And the thing is actually successful. So the people at uh, NASA are just celebrating. And I'm really looking forward to the first pictures that we get 
from the James Webb Telescope. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to look back in time. See, if you go back to the Big Bang, the original Big Bang of the universe, uh, uh, that uh, the initial light from the Big Bang just started expanding outward. So the further out you go in the universe, you're seeing light that is closer and closer to the Big Bang period, and they can learn more about the formation of the universe. So they're trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper in space, and in so doing, they're going back in time to try to understand the universe and, and where we came from. It's really interesting science. So that's what the, what's what's going on with this James Webb telescope, and I'm really, really happy to see that this thing is going so well. Now, what I would like to talk about, I think we've got... Just uh, about two minutes. Two minutes, yeah. Uh, they did a survey on what are the best programming languages to learn, um, and and so if you're if you're new to IT, this is this would be good for you to know. They, if you want to study data, data logic, you may want to learn Python, Java, C, C or C sharp. If you like visual design and interfaces, TypeScript might be up your alley. If you're looking to develop mobile apps, you want to learn Java for Android. You want to use Swift or Object C for for the Apple's iOS. Now, if you're looking for a job, the number one job demand language is Python, because it's used for uh, a number of, uh, of it's used for all the artificial intelligence, all the data manipulation. It's an easy, it's a quick coding language. It runs fairly slow, but the the computers now are so powerful that the, that that the slow runtime doesn't matter. It just is very very good for for development. It's extremely flexible. So it's like the um, it, you know it, it's like the Swiss Army knife of programming languages. So that's the number one demand language. Now second place is Java. Uh, so if you want to just learn two languages, would be uh, would be uh, Python and then Java. Now Python's a general purpose server side language. It's used for tasks from simple scripting to advanced um, uh, data science or machine learning. Uh, Java is a respected and time-tested language. It's used for organizations around the world. It's the main language behind Android, which owns 80% of the mobile market. It's also the most popular language for the Internet of Things. Java is considered harder to learn than Python, but easier than C or C++. And then the third one would be JavaScript. That's used for the, uh, the client-side processing. So if you want to get into uh, technology and you want to learn something, start with Python, go to Java, go to JavaScript. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And then go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in health sciences, nursing, cybersecurity, and tell them that you've heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.